Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hey, good morning and welcome back, everybody. Uh, We are continuing our three-part podcast talking about fat cats. Hope you listened to the last one uh, because today we are going to be building on the last one. This time, I'll be the one asking John the questions. John, you, uh, you ready for your show today? You know, Frank, I, I, I don't know that I'm ever ready, but I, I because we have a name, I feel an obligation to share with the audience after 15, 18, whatever episodes it was, our name. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to Safety Perspectives from Region 6, Fatality and Catastrophe Investigations, Part 2. This is not like some podcasts. I think this one kind of is going to stand alone from the first part of the series, but if you want sort of that continuity, you know, certainly hit pause, go back, listen to part one, and then pick up on part two. But like I said, I think part two will kind of stand on its own. Fair enough. So in order to get us started then, uh, since you've invited people not to listen to part one, what what is a fat cat, John? Fat cat in the world that you and I live in, we're talking about fatality catastrophe uh, incidents. So what do we think of when we uh, think about responding to a fat cat? Just uh, give a, give us a quick overview. So in dealing with fat cat, and it's kind of the three parts of this podcast. So, you know, one of the things we have to do is to make sure that we report the incidents. Well, let me back up. The first thing we need to do is make sure that the folks on the scene are taken care of, that the injured person is taken care of, that proper authorities are notified, that OSHA is notified, et cetera. Um, you know, second thing is the, the actual reporting to OSHA and, you know, the, the eight hour window for uh, cases that involve a death and 24 hour window cases involving an eye out, uh, amputation or an inpatient hospitalization for treatment. You know, and there's a whole host of things that go along after that, um, you know, series one or episode one, excuse me, dealt with preserving and documenting the scene. Uh, this podcast is going to deal with reports of any sort um, and privilege and witness statements and privilege. And then the last piece is going to deal with communications, be those communications with the employees, with the press, with the regulators, what have you. So when you talk about privilege, which is the subject of today's podcast, what are you what are you referring to with regard to privilege? So privilege is... Um, there, there's a variety of privileges that, that take place. So you have privileges, you know, the, the most common one I think most folks are aware of are the, is the attorney-client privilege. And so when you have a communication with your attorney, the communication, be it in writing, be it orally, or I guess otherwise, maybe smoke signal or telegraph or whatever, you know, that Communication is something that is between the client and the attorney, and the revelation of the contents of that communication are protected. Courts won't order the attorney-client privilege communication to be revealed. OSHA, though they sometimes will take the position that what they are doing is not a legal proceeding, 
and therefore the privilege doesn't apply. You know, they don't have the ability to compel revelation of those communications. Nobody has the ability to compel those communications. Now, there are some nuances associated with whether or not a communication. Let me direct you a little bit here. Uh, who is the client? When you say attorney client, we usually can identify the attorney. Who is the client? In terms of who the client is, the client is the employer um, in our world. You know, it, it is the the whether it's a corporation or an LLC or whatever. It is the ultimate client. So, as a for instance, and I assume you're going to go here, Frank. You know, let's say we're talking about ABC Inc. And, you know, who is the client in ABC Inc.? So the ultimate client is ABC Inc. Who the client is beyond that is going to vary according to state law. In Texas, all current employees of ABC Inc. are the clients. Former managers of ABC Inc. are the clients. And there's some other nuances to that, that it varies state to state in terms of who actually is considered the client. And it's according typically to either the rules of professional responsibility applicable to attorneys, or it's the rules of evidence, or it's some other sort of statutory law. Sometimes it's the common law and without getting kind of too geekified on the law, when, when the term common law is used by an attorney, we're, we're talking about court decisions that create law. But, but Having, practically speaking, John, seriously, yes, practically sir. speaking, though, just rule of thumb, the, the way I'm usually most confident about preserving attorney-client privilege is if I am communicating with a, a group that is sharply limited in number and, and ideally at a very high level. Typically, whenever I'm really wanting to discuss very sensitive matters that I, I want to ensure don't escape the uh, attorney-client communication privilege net, I'm typically talking to very high-level officials that have the authority to, to retain counsel, for instance. That's, a, that's generally a pretty safe place to draw the line. What I frequently caution employers about in, in every area where I work is copying too many people on emails can impact the privilege and make it more difficult to preserve a matter. So for instance, if, if um, I'm communicating with the uh, plant manager and the VP of human resources, and they all of a sudden copy a, um, a, a straw boss, a lead who doesn't really have any management authority, just to get their input on a theory I'm developing, then I am frequently concerned that that's going to upset my my privilege argument. Do you take a different approach than that? First of all, we could probably have a couple of episodes just on privilege and how to negotiate privilege in the course of an investigation. I generally, I, I agree with what you have to say there in terms of preserving the privilege. Um, and I mean, just as a general rule of thumb, sure, there are exceptions, right? But as a general rule of thumb, my thought is less is best. That's always been my theory is less is best. Fewer people on an email chain is best uh, because well, there's less risk of it uh, getting to someone that I can't argue is under the privilege. 
Well, I, so I actually, I go much less as best, I guess, if we want to follow that theme, I try to get folks to agree not to put things in emails that are privileged communications. And I try not to, I try to get them not to forward my emails as a, for instance, I, I'm much more inclined and, and I try to get clients to agree to keep things verbal and to limit the number of folks that are involved in those communications so that we can, you know, number one, we don't have a document trail that shows all of these communications that, you know, somehow managed to slip somebody, you know, accidentally copy somebody that they shouldn't have, what have you. Um, and, and oh, so, the classic autofill. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, they're so used to reply all that, that the wrong people get involved or what have you. Um, but then the other thing is, is that, it, you know, it, it does make communications a little bit more difficult and requires a little bit more deliberation in communicating. You know, emails are something that people shoot off without really thinking about it. And so if people are talking about it only and not reducing things to writing, I think that that's helpful. I think the good takeaway there then is keep keep the communications not only limited to a, to a group, but also limit the, the way that communications occur. Uh, so I, I, I kind of like your approach and, and I agree with it. I, I tend to follow it as if I have something serious and, and privileged that I want to discuss, then I typically will pick up the phone to make sure that by the time I'm finished with the conversation, there's no misunderstanding about the issue that I want to raise with the client. I, I, think, I think that's a fair analysis, John. Well, and, and I would throw one other thing in, and you know, to your point earlier, relative to kind of the circle of who's receiving the communications, you know, just want to make a couple of points relative to the privilege. So ABC Inc. owns the privilege. Only ABC Inc. can agree to waive the privilege. But in terms of you're keeping the communications limited to, excuse me, kind of a certain level and I won't want to say really high level people in the company, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you're really talking about, you know, the safety people, plant management, HR type people. And those people are, are really, you know, far removed from CEO, CFO, board of directors, that type of thing. But you really want to keep those communications limited to, you know, kind of higher level folks in the local organization or in the kind of the regional organization, because once you start sharing privileged communications with lower level folks, non-management folks, your straw boss, whatever the case might be, you've got to remember that those folks are, are number one, not particularly sophisticated when it comes to dealing with lawyers. Most of the kind of next layer, the people that we're actually going to be interacting with on the privilege piece, they are used to dealing with lawyers and they are used to the idea that there's information that can't be shared and that the company owns the privilege and they don't, they don't have the right to waive it. But then they also have the, the benefit of when they get interviewed by OSHA, we're going to be sitting in the room with them providing instruction. Whereas that straw boss, that line worker, that laborer, they're not going to have us sitting in the room with them. And when OSHA starts asking questions, it might not even trigger the, the alarm that, hey, look, I'm not supposed to be talking about this because this is something that's privileged and company owns a privilege and I don't have the right to waive the privilege, et cetera. They're not sophisticated in dealing with lawyers and, and they're just going to share. Good enough. All right. Uh, so uh, let's talk about witness statements. Uh, often after uh, one of these fat cat accidents, we have employers with general protocols just to go out and take witness statements. 
And so they'll, they'll take the piece of paper, drop it in front of the witnesses to the accident or even people who didn't see the accident and say, okay, tell me uh, everything that was important about this or fill out this accident report, maybe without any more instruction than that. You like that approach? Good grief. No, Frank. I hate that approach. It's the kind of you give a person a blank piece of paper and you tell them, write down everything you know, and and you're going to get some joker that's going to put in some response that just is meaningless. If you get a- They might not even be joking. I I see ridiculous responses when they're trying to be serious. Right. And, and, And a lot of the responses- you know, let, let's say it's like a, a, a fall incident. You know, Joe fell from the roof. That does nothing. We all know that Joe fell from the roof. That we want to know what you saw, where you were, all that type of stuff. So, you know, when when you handle handle the report or, or the witness statement by just handing it to the person, you, you generally get garbage. Uh, it's only when you get into kind of the higher level people or people who are a little bit more thoughtful on the cruise that you get a better response. Generally, right after an accident, I don't like to let anybody write their own stuff. I like somebody educated about accident investigations, not necessarily formally right. educated, but somebody who knows how to conduct an accident investigation. I personally prefer to have that type of individual go and interview the witnesses and ask the questions and prepare the prepare the response. I mean, if, if I wanted to have a witness statement signed, I would I would prefer to have somebody that had that training and that experience prepare a witness statement for an employee to review and sign if they agree with it. Uh, Frequently, I don't ask for employees to review and sign them because arguably once it's reviewed and signed by a witness and not even arguably, but it's outside of the privilege, it'd be harder to protect. But if it's prepared based on an interview, especially if it's questions that I've prepared, or if I'm asking the questions and I feel like I've got a better, better opportunity to not only collect the correct information, but I've got a better opportunity to argue that the information I collected reflects my thought processes, which gives me an argument to preserve privilege. Do you take a different approach? Well, I take a slightly different approach. So, you know, in in Texas, given the evidentiary rules and, you know, I think the same is true in Louisiana. You know, there, there can be some problems when you have folks, you know, basically sign statements and, you know, regardless of who's generated them and, and you try to protect them. Let me back up just a second. You know, I'm going through this with a client right now who's kind of reevaluating their internal procedures relative to an accident investigation. And one of my questions for clients in this client has historically created a root cause analysis, RCA, in the events there's some sort of incident or near miss. And and my recommendation is, 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 look, you know, I understand that the internal process requires that you get a statement from folks. And, and I understand why you have that internal process, but how about we do this? How about we let me interview that person? I put my notes together of that interview. We don't ever have that person sign them. Those are 100% unassailably my thoughts and impressions, and it's one of the privileges that I didn't mention at the beginning of the podcast, which is attorney work product. It is my work product. It is privileged. Very few courts are ever going to disturb that, and it's never going to be discoverable, whether it be by OSHA or by the other side. Now, it, it doesn't have you know, a certain sort of gut appeal that something signed by you know, Frank and John 
might have, you know, so that when they're cross-examining Frank and John, we can whip that out and say, ah, you know, but you signed this. But it's pretty powerful evidence that, you know, this is what they were telling us. This is what they told us. This is the question and answer, et cetera. Uh, so my approach is, is, is kind of even more conservative than yours. Yeah, it sounds like it, but not not too far off from from my preference. So you mentioned root cause reports. Uh, I know many employers, maybe even most of the employers, uh, have a, a, a response to an accident, and their response typically involves an internal investigation trying to identify the root cause. What caused this to happen, and why why are they doing that? Because they want to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, and that's, uh, I respect that effort. I think it's an important effort. Uh, following a, a fatality or a catastrophic event, uh, what are your feelings about preparing a non-privileged root cause report? I think a good RCA requires time. And I think- RCA requ- root, cause, root cause analysis? Correct. Correct. I'm sorry. I think it takes time. I think it takes reflection. I think it takes- a little bit of distance. I think it may take benefit of, you know, some outside analysis or, you know, some testing of theories, et cetera. And I think that kind of rushing to engage in that process is a mistake. Now, shifting gear slightly on the RCA process, if you involve an attorney in the process and if the attorney is quote unquote preparing it, and if they're doing it under the cloak of privilege, meaning you don't have third-party participants involved, you don't have you know the contractors involved, you don't have the customer involved, you don't have you know experts, outside experts involved in actually generating the report, and you don't intend that that report is going to be made public until it's actually finalized, I'm okay with that. But that's a little bit different story than the way a lot of clients handle it. And quite frankly, a lot of clients have to handle it or, or feel compelled to handle it differently because their client, customer, host, whatever the case might be, requires that they generate a report. You know, the, one of the issues that I frequently see, maybe the one I see the most, is whenever uh, the in, in-house uh, HSE person hurries to prepare a report and prematurely draws the wrong conclusion, just takes a big swing and a, and a miss, but nevertheless puts it in writing, circulates it uh, among a group that is, is hard to call it a privileged report. And, and then you end up having to back down off of it after you've been able to actually review all the records, evaluate the scene, maybe even hire an expert. And that's one of my major apprehensions about uh, having an internal report prepared immediately by by someone who's not in a privileged circle. I've just seen too often where they've taken preliminary information and and applied it to the best of their ability, but it gets applied very incorrectly. And root cause analysis, the RCA, as you, you, you like to call it, makes me think a record's not a root cause report or an accident report. But um, the root cause analysis, I think, is confusing for people. What is the real reason of an injury? Uh, and I think that frequently that's confused with contributing factors and that gets written into the report. And I, it's, it's very tough to explain later on because OSHA will take that report, that non-privileged report, 
and they'll use it as a roadmap to cite an employer. And, and then it's exhibit one in the trial. And it, it, it's applied the same way in civil lawsuits, in my experience, when you've got that admission by the safety person on site. Look, Frank, I couldn't possibly be more aligned with you on that. I think that that's absolutely spot on. I'll say a couple of other things, you know, from the standpoint of, I think just as a whole, you know, we find out a certain quantity of information day of the incident. Day two, we find out a bunch more information. You know, day three through 10 or so, you continue to find and learn more information. And if you're generating the report on day one, there's a whole lot of information that remains to be discovered, remains to be learned. Number two, you know, a lot of our clients use particular methodologies. You know, the, the one that I hear a lot of is the five whys. And, and I, I think, you know, folks feel compelled to get to the fifth why because that's what the methodology calls for as opposed to that's necessarily a good stopping point. And then three, with regard to some of those methodologies, you know, the, 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 the methodology comes with some instructions from, you know, corporate based on whatever reasoning. And, and I'm dealing with one right now that, you know, we're not going to blame the employee. So even if the employee did some incredibly ridiculous, unsafe activity, you know, ultimately in the RCA, the determination is not going to point the finger at the employee. It's going to point the finger at the company for failing to supervise, or the employer, I shouldn't say company, failing to supervise, failing to, to train, failing to whatever, even if they had done all those things. But because there's a philosophy that we're not going to blame the employees, excuse me, the, the, the causative factor may be outside of that report. So if it's not privileged based on kind of how the process is executed, it can create a, a massive headache from the, the OSHA perspective, from the civil litigation perspective, from every perspective, from public relations perspective, that report gets out there in the public and, you know, some reporter finds it and, and runs with it. I mean, if you protect it with attorney-client privilege or attorney work product, then it doesn't get out in the public. And there you go. You let us into our next episode, uh, part three, and the final part of this podcast series. We'll be talking about communications and public relations post-FATCAT. And we will also get into a little bit of a discussion about mea culpa, um, which is a little bit of where you just left off on our next podcast. But until then, John, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to spend time visiting with you in uh, these mornings. And um, I look forward to next week. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.